You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 217, The Inner Light. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we take apart an episode of Star Trek, searching through it for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. This week, the inner light is the one that everybody loves. Also known as the one where Picard lives out someone else's life on a planet long since destroyed. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot that there were two two things about that episode that was significant. There's Picard living out somebody's life, and the fact that everybody loves this episode. Yes, so because ev- everybody, know, got- al- I would say almost everybody loves this episode. Mm-hmm. Almost. I can't imagine. I mean, there are probably people who don't like it, and I guess mm-hmm. we'll find out later whether we like it or not. Although I guess we just kind of spoiled it by saying everybody loves this episode. <laughs> But but you don't know. You don't know if you're listening to this show. You don't know yet because you're right at the beginning of the episode. Well, yeah. except we said everybody, and I think we count ourselves among those people. <laughs> but yeah, spoiler alert, something else may happen along the way. Hey, uh, mm-hmm. John has trivia coming up in a moment. But first, we are stoked to welcome a new sponsor to Mission Log. It's Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Ken, I feel like you know me pretty well. I feel like our, our listeners know me pretty well. You may not know this about me, though. Um, I love food. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I love food. And, and I love to cook, and I love to eat. Now, what I don't love is planning and shopping, you know, like opening up a, a pantry and trying to figure out what I need. I, I do not enjoy that part. Um, but what I love about Blue Apron is the idea of perfect portions, no waste, everything is there, and I just get to do the fun part, which is put my meal together and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, you get to do that with ingredients that are both um, good and sustainable, which is which is actually a part that I love. It's not just... Well, they've partnered with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the country. So the seafood sustainably sourced, the, the beef, the chicken, and the pork, they're all responsibly raised. And the produce comes from farms that uh, practice regenerative farming. It's not quite like driving to the farmer's market. <laughs> but it's like having somebody else drive to the farmer's market for you and then uh, dropping that stuff off on your front porch. It's kind of magic. Yeah, like you said, it's just a big box of food on your front porch. Here you go. Now now you get to do the fun part, cook and eat. And as for cooking, each meal comes with easy, step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe cards and all of the ingredients that you need pre-measured in the amounts needed. So you won't have too little of something. You won't end up with throwing extra ingredients away. It's seriously a great way to cook and to learn. So what we would like for you to do is check it out for yourself. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping 
by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Start today at blueapron.com slash mission log. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And a huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show. <laughs> kind of fun, right? Yeah. Because here's the thing. Everybody eats. Yeah. Well, I, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like uh, yeah. everybody might want to try it. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what else everybody might want to do is get in touch with us. Oh, man. Yeah. Send <laughs> us pictures of your food, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> that would be absolutely fantastic. Or, you know, send us your comments about the show or things you'd like to hear. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now an episode about which, sadly, there is very little to say. <laughs> Likely, including trivia. But, you know, I will spare you a minute, <laughs> maybe two, oh. if you want to make some stuff up. Because yeah. I, really, I really can't imagine this is a well-studied, uh, a well-researched, um, a well-documented episode of Star Trek. You know, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. And if I don't have anything good, I'll improvise. So today's story, written by Morgan Gendel, and he shares the teleplay credit with Peter Allen Fields. Now, uh, Morgan named this episode after the Beatles song that is the B-side to Lady Madonna. That's pretty cool. A little bit of music trivia there. Don't expect a lot of Beatles lyrics in this episode, though, of Mission Log. Um, His professional writing career starts in the late 80s with TV credits on Wise Guy, 21 Jump Street, more. He's credited with two Next Gen episodes, followed by two Deep Space Nine episodes, and he contributed to Tech War, the TV series based on William Shatner's book. Now, because writer and producer are inextricably linked in TV production, Morgan shows up in those positions across shows from VIP to Law & Order, Drop Dead Diva to Nash Bridges. So let's talk a little bit about what got him to Next Generation. He wasn't total outsider pitching spec scripts, uh, but his first pitch may as well have been. Uh, He tried the, you know, planet where everyone tells the truth pitch, only to find out that it was one of the staff's pet peeves of pitches that they were sick of hearing. So then he came back influenced by the idea that Next Gen had rarely gotten into the heart of its characters. He pitched variations of this episode four times. It was the road not taken idea that stuck. And um, he had kind of a psychological premise. Well, well, a couple of them. You know, one of Gendel's starting premises for the story was, what if you wake up tomorrow and realize everything in your life had been a dream? So interesting idea, number one. And then the other idea influence here is that we sometimes have a very hard time distinguishing between real experience and what's happening in our minds. So then he was able to launch off into this bit of storytelling. The episode was directed by Peter Lauritsen, and we haven't mentioned him as a director before because he wasn't. Peter, however, worked as a producer on Next Gen from the very beginning. He was primarily in charge of post-production, everything from effects to music and sound editing. This is the first of only three directing credits he has, but he continued as a Star Trek producer until the end of Enterprise in 2005. 
And after that, he pops up on a number of other shows, most notably The Mentalist, where he was a co-producer. Now, The Inner Light is a winner of a Hugo Award. It was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Makeup. Speaking of makeup, Patrick Stewart had the earliest call time of the entire cast during this part of production, sometimes starting at 1 a.m. for a 7 a.m. on-set report time. No surprise, he described this episode as one of his greatest acting challenges while on Next Gen. I'm sorry, uh, he had to be there at 1 a.m. for a 7 a.m. call time. Yep. Was that to apply all the muscle? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that's just like uh, Ricardo Montalban as Khan. Our captain is pretty rip in this episode. He is. He's, he's got the gun show, man. He does. Now, let's talk about deleted scenes, which you will find on the Blu-ray. Uh, let's see, you have a different opening this time. It's more of a casual, you know, catching up in the middle of the day kind of opening. Uh, Picard is talking about opera. Riker is laughing. Then we find the probe. Uh, we have a scene with a little more of Picard's insistence that he is Picard, while Eileen is offering to make him a hot drink. We have the Enterprise crew trying to figure out what's wrong before Dr. Crusher arrives on the bridge. And we have more of Picard on the bridge and Beverly noting that his metabolic rates are, quote, like that of an 80-year-old man. Finally, the last scene is a kind of heartbreaking scene with Cayman's daughter, Maribor, telling him that Kami will have a rich life, even if it will be a short one. Now, I always like watching these, and it's good to see them in context, as they do on the disc. The deleted scenes have no music or sound effects, just the dialogue, and you can sometimes hear stage chatter and other stuff happening. So it's kind of a a nice way to get a a glimpse behind the scenes of the show. Now, I do want to point out, I, I, of course, I I love watching the uh, the photography on Next Gen, and uh, there's a dramatic change in lighting in this episode to go from sunlight to, you know, super bright sunlight. And um, I kept thinking the studio must have been filled with HMIs. I don't know if you've Heard of these, but uh, they, and I'm going to botch the name here, but uh, Hydrargyrum Medium Arc Iodide Lights. Um, and I, I bring it up because I've only played with these once or twice. You turn one on and it just absolutely floods a room with daylight temperature light. They are remarkable devices. They're huge. They have to have a lot of ballast and a lot of control on the amount of energy that goes into them. Um, But I remember working on a commercial one time in a diner. They literally set up one of these lights outside the diner, and it just flooded the entire restaurant with daylight light. So that's what we have a lot of in this episode. Just a little bit of location shooting uh, at Bronson Canyon to get that nice exterior of uh, Picard hiking up into the hills. And, uh, you know, we don't always talk about the music in trivia, but it's of note that Jay Chataway, who is composing episode music at this time, created the score for The Inner Light, as well as the flute piece played by Cayman. Now, it was memorable and popular enough among fans that he extended it into an orchestral piece a few years later. Now, let's talk about that flute. So it is a prop. It doesn't work. But uh, it sure is worth something. When this was auctioned off by Christie's, it was originally estimated to bring about $300. Then they thought better of it. You know, it was a popular episode. It's kind of an iconic device from that episode. So they adjusted the estimate from about $800 to $1,200. Then it sold for $40,000. Plus the 20% buyer's premium bringing the total to $48,000. And it didn't work? doesn't work 
Now, also worth mentioning that it's not a flute. It's a penny whistle. Right. I saw it, and they were like, oh, you play the flute. And I thought, no, he doesn't. No, <laughs> it's a penny whistle. <laughs> it's a penny whistle. He, I had a penny whistle. By the way, I don't understand. I had a penny whistle, and it worked, and it cost me like 10 bucks. Wow. See, look at that. You're, you're like $47,900 and $990 ahead of the game by having that <laughs> uh, penny whistle. Seems That's like good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a flute, it's a penny whistle, and it's important uh, for a couple of reasons. A, because of the nautical heritage, you know, uh, uh, penny whistles were used throughout the history of the Navy, flutes were not, and uh, it also allows us to see Picard's face. So Morgan Gendel had come up with the idea of the flute, he pitched it, the producers and other writers hated it. They hated the idea, and he he brought this back to his wife, and, and she said, yeah, you know, flutes aren't cool. And then he thought, well, wait a minute, it's a penny whistle because it's the Navy, because that Starfleet is based around the Navy. So we'll tie it back to that. We'll make it a little cooler. So that's how we ended up with that uh, musical instrument in the episode. Would have been totally awesome, though, if it was like a slide whistle. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Mouth harp, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Mouth harp would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <That'd> be <awesome. laughs> yeah. Or a pan flute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pen flute would also be fun, yeah. but I think the mouth harp would be the best because it's yeah. all very serious, very staid, and then it's all. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I really, I'm, I'm really envious of the captain. He got to live a whole life on another planet, but I wish they had picked some. Like a penny whistle, maybe would have been good. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> that mouth harp is killing me. Just not fun after 50 years. Says right. data. I mean, it's that annoying. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the guest stars. Uh, we have Richard Reel as Bataille. Richard is from Wisconsin, studied theater at Notre Dame, and then continued to work and study German while living in Austria. He's one of those actors who just works constantly. In the 70s and 80s, he had some small film roles and then landed a few TV guest jobs uh, like Falcon Crest, Quantum Leap, and My Two Dads. He was Ed Rooney in the TV version of Ferris Bueller, After this, he appears in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Joe Dirt, the West Wing ER. There's so much more. He was in Office Space. He was also in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and even a Transformers movie. I mean, the guy has more than 25 credits for the year 2016 alone. Other actors really need him to slow down. Um, He was in that Jerome Bixby-written movie that I like quite a bit, Man from Earth, and we're not done with him yet because he'll be back for two appearances on Voyager and two more on Enterprise. You know, it's it's amazing. I actually tried to check him out because he is one of those faces, and we've talked about these faces before, Mm -hmm. where you see him and you're like, oh, I know that guy. He was in, and then I checked, and he's in everything. In (laughs) fact, I think it's almost law that he has to have been in everything. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it's quite possible that he is playing either John Champion or Ken Ray in this episode. Yeah, he, he's in everything. He might He's in your living room right now. Uh, <laughs> so make sure he's got a sandwich. Make sure he's comfortable. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, when it got the most manic in being John Malkovich. I think if you go to the grocery store today, he will be your cashier. He will be your bagger. He will be the mm-hmm. manager. Mm-hmm. He will be the face on the baby food as you walk yep. down the aisle. Yep. So, yeah. so give, him, give him a little pat on the back for that. He's, he's a that guy. Now, we also have Scott Jake as the administrator. Scott is also from Wisconsin. He worked in theater before making the jump to TV. In fact, he was nominated three times for the Jeff Award, which, if you know Chicago theater, like I do, and maybe a handful of our other listeners do, this is a big deal. 
TV appearances include T.J. Hooker, Remington Steele, Alienation, and The Larry Sanders Show, and he had recurring roles on ER, Santa Barbara, JAG, China Beach, and Beverly Hills 90210. He will be back for more Trek. Look for him in the premiere episode of Voyager. We have Jennifer Nash as Maribor. Jennifer has done just about everything an actor can do. She was born in South Africa, but studied at the National Theater of Great Britain. She worked there as well as on Broadway. She worked in commercials and TV. You've seen her in guest roles on Growing Pains, Home Improvement, Coach, Red Shoe Diaries, and more. Daniel Stewart as Cayman's son, Bataille. Yes, that is Stewart as in Patrick Stewart's real-life son from Patrick's first wife, Sophie Falconer. Daniel has a handful of roles to his credit other than this, his only appearance on Trek, but he shows up on Space Above and Beyond, as well as Law and Order SVU, and he works with his father again on Blunt Talk. Finally, Margot Rose as Eline. Margot got her start in theater in New York, then worked on commercials. Early film appearances include the Eddie Murphy movie 48 Hours and Brewster's Millions, and she found herself with a recurring role on Night Court. After The Next Generation, she shows up on Beverly Hills 90210, Models, Inc., and Melrose Place. So, you know, all those evening young adult dramas of the 90s, she hit them all. Later appearances on Law & Order LA, The Mentalist, and Desperate Housewives. She will be back for a guest role on Deep Space Nine. And I mentioned a moment ago the deleted scenes, but there were even more that didn't make it to that Blu-ray. Way more with her, in fact, and Peter Allen Fields regretted that those had to be cut for time. Remind me, which episode is this again? Oh yes, the one that everybody likes. Seriously. Everybody. Prologue. The Enterprise encounters an unidentifiable probe in space somewhere in the Parvenium sector. It's way old, it's made up of weird materials, and it's scanning the Enterprise. Before the order can be given to back off, a tiny orb of light zips from it to the bridge and into Captain Picard. He passes out, and just as soon as Riker is gently breaking his fall to the floor, he wakes up again, but not on the bridge. Instead of Riker, Picard is looking at Aline, his wife, who keeps calling him Cayman. This is not a holodeck simulation, and this is not the Enterprise. Act 1. Aline keeps telling Picard, um, Cayman, that he's been ill for a while. He might still be disoriented and shouldn't go. Oh, uh, there he goes, right out the door. It's a nice town, this Resic. Kind of a desert modern thing going on. Lots of earth tones in the clothing. Sun is awfully bright, though. In the town square, there's a man talking about the tree the community has planted as a symbol of hope against the drought they're facing. The man clearly knows Cayman, though Picard is clearly confused and asks if he's in charge which then makes that man a bit confused, too. The man is Bataille, council leader and one of Cayman's friends, and he suggests Cayman go home to his wife. Picard is still fishing for answers. The town is Resic, the planet is Catan, and he'd rather go for a walk to sort things out. Up on a high hill, Picard gets a look at the community, and then he heads back home. Eileen is relieved to see him, assuming he was lost and still ill, and Picard says he's hungry, thirsty, exhausted, which probably means that this is not a dream. She can't believe what she's hearing, that this is not Cayman's life, but she gets something to eat, something delicious, by the way. He's still asking odd questions, though. How do they talk to others far away? A voice transit conductor, which Picard asks to see tomorrow. 
And what about Aline? They married three years ago, the happiest day of her life. A couple more biographical details. Cayman is a metal worker, and he plays the flute, though not very well. She insists that they go to bed. And just then, Picard notices the pendant on her necklace. It looks exactly like a miniature version of the space probe he saw before the opening credits. It's a gift, the first gift she says he gave to her. Cut to the bridge of the Enterprise, Riker calls for medical help to attend to the unconscious Picard laying on the floor. Act 2. The probe hasn't budged, and Dr. Crusher isn't finding anything odd about Picard's current physical state. It's just that his neural activity is off the charts. Seeing as how it's directly related to the probe, Riker wisely dissuades Worf from, you know, blowing it up. Any movement of the Enterprise is matched precisely by the probe, which means they aren't going anywhere soon. Cut back to Resic, and years have passed. You can tell because things change, people change, hairstyles change, interest rates fluctuate. Picard, well, Cayman, is charting the sun, but he's also thinking about the memory of his life on a starship. Eileen challenges him that in all the stories she has heard about that life, he never once mentioned a wife or someone who loved him. He just keeps saying that to him, it was real. Those memories are as real as this life. Eileen wants her husband back. She wants their life together. Before the conversation can get more personal, Bataille shows up, announcing that he and Cayman have a meeting with the administrator. The administrator is kind of a, well, he's an administrator, not the warm and fuzzy type. He's suspicious of that one thriving tree in town when other crops are dying. Bataille explains that it's their symbol of hope and everyone in town donates a portion of their water ration. The drought isn't getting any better. Bataille says they'll need some help. Then Cayman steps in with a radical idea. He tells the administrator that they could build atmospheric water condensers. Interesting idea. Expensive idea. We'll get back to you on that one. Yeah. No, it won't happen, Cayman explains to Bataille. The administrator would rather bury his head in the sand than do something ambitious to solve their problems. To Bataille... The thing he took away is that Cayman actually sounded like he was part of the community again and not the confused Picard speaking out. Back home, Cayman is playing that flute, eking out Frère Jacques, and Aline steps out to make sure Bataille is on his way home. As Cayman thinks, he realizes he hasn't been the most attentive husband, despite Aline's devotion. He asks her permission to build something, which seems a little out of place since he's never needed her permission before. This one is different, though. He wants to build a nursery. Back on the bridge of the Enterprise, analysis of the probe has revealed that it is powered with solid propellant. That propellant makes a radioactive trail which they should be able to follow back to the source. Meanwhile, Data thinks they can interrupt the probe's connection to Picard, which Riker is eager to do, but Beverly warns is probably highly risky. So, you know, stick around. Act 3. Outside Cayman's home, a little girl is playing. Inside, a naming ceremony is going on for the second child born to Cayman and Eileen. This one is named Bataille, after their late friend. And to welcome him, Cayman is playing an original tune, quite well, actually, on his flute. He's basking in the warmth of family and friendship when Cayman suddenly falls to the floor ill. Immediately cutting to the Enterprise, Picard is convulsing, his vitals are caving. Dr. Crusher and Nurse Ogawa do everything they can to stabilize him, but it's Data who needs to stop interfering with the beam coming from that probe. Once that's reestablished, Picard seems to stabilize. A few more years have passed on Catan. Cayman greets the young woman, Maribor, who is his daughter. 
That's the little girl we saw a moment before. She's busying herself with science, analyzing the soil, and realizing that this drought is chronic. Their soil is dead. Cayman encourages Maribor to put down the soil samples for a moment. What about her life? What about that young man? Maribor thinks that she should marry, maybe sooner than later. Cayman knowingly encourages his daughter to make the most of her time. On the bridge, Picard is okay, and Geordi has a fix on where that probe originated, about a light year away. It's a planet called Catan. Probably was a nice place, but about a thousand years ago, their sun went nova, killing all life. Act 4. Many more years have passed in Resic. Time to check in on Cayman's grown, young adult son, Batai. He tells his father that for all these years that he's been focused on science and math, he really wants to pursue his music, maybe even drop out of school to do so. After all, he plays a mean frère Jacques on the flute. Cayman isn't too happy with the news at first, but he softens a little. At least he'll hear him out. Maybe not such a bad idea to let the kid follow his dreams. Cayman's due for a meeting with the administrator. And guess what? They know all about the dire prospects for the planet and the eventual extinction of everyone there. But what would they do? Panic everyone? Cayman says there must be a way, something, anything they can do. Perhaps evacuate some people. But to where? Surely something of this culture can be preserved. The administrator says there is something being planned. He can't say what, but something. Cayman's interrupted, though. He's needed at home right away. Yaline has taken a turn for the worse. She's saying goodbye to Cayman, weak, but with a gentle reminder to put his shoes away. And then she slips away, and Cayman is crushed. Act 5. More time has passed. An elderly Cayman is horsing around with his grandson, Cami. In walks Maribor. She's there to gather the family to go see a launch of some sort. The whole town will be there. And it's bright out, awfully bright. Protective sun gear is the in look these days all over Catan. Cayman is a little reflective, dismayed that his grandson won't be given the opportunity to live a rich, full life. Cayman didn't recall hearing the announcement of the launch, no idea what it is, in fact, but he parks himself on the step of a dry fountain to watch. Everyone is there, literally everyone from town, including the people who passed away long ago. There's Bataille, Cayman's old friend. There's Eline, as young as she was when she met Cayman. It's like a dream, but it wasn't a dream. It was a place, and you, and you, and you, and you were there, but you couldn't have been, could you? The launch is a probe which will find someone in the future to tell the story of the dying civilization. The someone it finds is Picard. A second later, Picard wakes up on the bridge, and the probe has shut down. He's been out for less than half an hour, and he slowly realizes where he is and who he is. Some time later, Riker visits Picard in his quarters. The probe has been brought on board and is no longer functioning. They were able to open it and found one thing inside, the flute that Cayman had learned to play. Picard takes it, and alone, plays the tune he had played at his son's naming ceremony. The end. So here's what I found myself wondering. Yep. Is Troy passed out on another deck from the overload of emotions being experienced by Picard? Oh, man, she must be, because we don't see her. Yeah. Uh, he lives to be about 80 or 90, we guess. Mm-hmm. So in that half hour, he gets about 40 to 50 years of emotion. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> all of yeah. which have to be radiating off of him if you were, I don't know, an empath tuned into somebody else's emotions. Yeah. Uh, you think Riker might even think that? I mean, like, get us a doctor. Oh, oh, and where's the, oh, my girlfriend. What's her? Right. Oh, who, ah, uh, please, somebody go find her. Could somebody check <laughs> on the emo chick, please? Because I feel certain this is doing something to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this seems like one of those episodes. Every now and then you come across an episode and you go, okay, well, that character isn't in there, but that's okay. They wrote around that character. But there's a couple of times that Troy would have been really helpful. Well, except there'd have been no episode. Then she would have been like, there would have, there would have been nothing happening in the real world at that point. If, if Troy's there, like just going, oh no, he's fine, he's fine. Just let him work through it. Oh no, see, I, I disagree though because I like last week when Troy was sensing the transporter accident, which made no sense to me at all. <laughs> right. Um, this time around, it makes sense if you've got Doctor Crusher and Nurse Agawa there saying, okay, his vitals are okay. But Troy saying, whoa, his vitals are okay, but all that neural activity, his emotions are just going crazy. It's like uh, the the ND500 of emotions in there. So be careful, which we've already said, be careful with Picard. Yeah. But I I think fine to have uh, Troy there and reiterate that. No, I'm really glad she wasn't there, honestly. I just, I'm more like the, you know, comedic idea that she's just totally passed out. (laughs) (laughs) Totally passed out in her quarters or someplace in that yoga room that she goes to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Beverly hadn't been called to the bridge. Maybe she would have seen Troy pass out. Yeah. You know, because they were going (laughs) to do yoga together or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Hey, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Jerry pose an interesting question and and by the way actually so did many of our listeners eric alex so, so many people wrote in about this um but jerry had a full that i a few that i wanted to pull here um does the contents of the probe alter itself to fit the person it connects with so think about that for a moment if it had been a klingon let's say that probe went into uh wharf mm. would the people on Catan look like klingons or what if the probe had gone into somebody who doesn't have, you know, gendered sexes or anything else that maybe would not have fit the narrative that was being told on Catan? And then follow up question, are those characters acting around Picard as he reacts or are they on a pre-programmed story? Will they react the same way given whomever the probe connects with? If Picard had gotten there and he was like, eh, no, I'm not interested in any of this. I'm going to go hide in the mountains for a few years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> did, did they just say, no, uh, we, no, come, uh, get back here, you know. A bit like the Truman Show. Yeah, right. Like every time he tries to leave town, something happens until he finally gets to the edge of the earth, which is like three miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, so in Act 1 or 2, I can't remember which, I guess it's Act 2. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Act 1. I don't know. One of the two. Mm-hmm. When when he sees the pendant that he yes. had given her, okay, yeah. so she's sort of leaning over him, and he reaches for her chest. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought the first, every time actually that I watched it, I thought he's going to make some endearing gesture, you know, or, or something. And I immediately thought, okay, I mean, just to your question, if this is Riker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, st- yeah. he starts having a relationship with her immediately. I mean, yep. he may still be trying to figure out how to get away, but I mean, it's kind of an interesting question, but there's a, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think we'll actually probably, we'll, we'll probably end up coming back to that in a little bit, I would think. Yeah. Well, and, and similar ideas to ponder here that our listeners asked, you know, was Cayman a real person who was modeled for this simulation? Mm-hmm. 
or you know would Cayman have had the same life played out as someone else had met the probe and how many people has this happened to before? We, I, I'll assume none because the probe shuts down. Right. But, you know, did it try with anyone else before? <laughs> like, nope, this is not a good match. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. What if it had been a pack lid? Yeah, Sorry. right. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Very different episode. Yeah. We actually yeah. do this for almost every alien race we've come across. What Pretty if it, much. Oh, what if it had been a Starfleet Admiral? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. The worst. <laughs> Just the, the worst. Worst. Yeah. I like this administrator. The cut of his jib really is something, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um in an episode with so many good moments, and I feel like you and I could just go kind of from scene to scene, act to act, and say, Oh, that was a great moment, that was a great moment. Yeah. There's one that is so subtle, but I really liked it, and it's three words in a line. It's Aline saying Batai, go home. <laughs> it, it was... I'd actually say five words. Batai, go home. Yes, ma'am. Uh, right. I mean, right. It's very, it's right. Very, and I know it's, you're right. It, there's just something so... There's something lovely about that. There's something amazing, yeah. actually. We're going to come back later to whether the episode holds up and all that stuff. But yeah. we constantly talk about what an amazing performance Patrick Stewart gives in different situations. Yeah, it is amazing to see somebody like the guy who plays Bataille very comfortably put his arm around Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And I got to figure it's because that actor seriously is doing a commercial even as we speak. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's working Mm -hmm. right now. Right now. If you look at his IMDb page, you will be blown away. Yeah. Well, he left your he left your living room. (laughs) He got a sandwich and then he had to immediately go do a commercial. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, his level of comfort has to be great on any set, I would think. I mean, just mm-hmm. because he's done it so incredibly much. Uh, but then also the level of comfort uh, between um, uh, Picard and Aline is amazing. But then the level of comfort between those two actors as well. I mean, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, well, I, I've, said, I've said before on our show that I'm a huge fan of underwriting a scene. There are way too many scenes and way too many TV shows or movies where the moment is overwritten to try to explain what's going on. Yeah. This is a scene where the words are so simple. But I go home. Yes, ma'am. Means nothing on the page. Yeah. But the way it is expressed, it says everything. It says everything about the level of familiarity that they have, because you probably have that friend who is so familiar that you and he or she just sort of forgets that they're there <laughs> and, you know oh it, oh it is time for me to go right right it is time for me to go there's nothing about that moment that's malicious it's not obnoxious it's just so deeply familiar yeah that it's charming and it's real yeah this this happens all the time yeah i mean you can tell yeah. this happens all the time and there's no there's mm-hmm. no eye rolling there's no you're right there's no dragging it out Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, 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 in, in, a, in an episode full of beautiful moments, um, yep. that, is, that is just an incredibly beautiful moment. And you're right. Part of the reason is because, I mean, it just happens and it's done. Um, about that probe, Ken, that is a very advanced piece of technology for people who are only just now able to launch something. <laughs> See, you know. Kind of. Um, and yet there's a little retro thing. It looks like, it looks to me like a 3D version of the uh, lightning bolt on the... Uh, Ziggy Stardust face. Oh, yeah, it sure does. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, there's a star man waiting in the sky. I'm just saying. 
<laughs> nice. Um, and I will say, in all seriousness, so I, I watched this episode many times, and obviously it's one of those episodes that I remember very well from having watched it before. Um, but, you know, uh, my, my duty to our show is to watch it again and again and again. And, and I managed somehow to not tear up every time I watched this. I heard from a few listeners who kind of almost did a, a like a live email, like three or four emails in a row saying, oh, I'm starting to watch it. Oh, now I'm crying again. Oh, Picard just did this. Now I'm crying. So I, I managed to not get sucked into the emotion of it until the last time I watched it. And you know what it was that did it? It was the curtain call moment. It, it, I will call it the curtain call. It came in sitting on that fountain and all of his friends gathered back around, just just showing up. Mm. And to me, for some reason, that was so uh, incredibly powerful and emotional. Again, in an episode with so many emotional moments, I, I think that was the one that did it for me. And, and I'm not sure why, but just getting it out there so that this segment doesn't sound entirely like we're making fun of things. From the people who brought you the Sonny Clements Big Note Guitar Songbook, it is Cayman's Learn to Play the Flute, or Tin Whistle, whichever. You will learn such classics as Fred Jaka, Are You Sleeping, and Fred Jaka. Cayman's Learn to Play the Flute, or Tin Whistle, whichever. Available where books about flutes, or tin whistles, or whichever, are sold. Right. It seems that in an episode with a lot to talk about, we just sort of dive in wherever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there might be more than a few points that we tackle in this segment. Um, I, I thought right away there was kind of an obvious environmental statement uh, attempting to be made, though. Honestly, I don't know if it really matters what the specific crisis is. It's more just sort of a setup of, OK, you've got those in power turning a blind eye to the evidence in front of them. Yeah. And do they really know all along? How long do they know? Are they just playing into an unwinnable situation? It, it's clearly not the point of the episode, but it's an interesting backdrop to be taking place with it. Yeah. There was, I mean, I, well, I'm not sure there was an environmental message personally because mm-hmm. their son is going supernova. It's not like they're continuing to dump toxins into the air or something like that. No, right. right. Of course. There is yeah. a problem they need to take care of and they're not going to. So, I mean, right. I'd say right. there's more of like a hope in the face of hopelessness message, though, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know really what sense that makes because it's hopeless. <laughs> and they know that. And still yeah. knowing that they, they choose hope, which, you know, I don't get, but that's what they call it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to go ahead and confess, like right at the start, okay. you know, the start of the middle. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going right. to go ahead and confess that um, I am not overly into talking about this episode, uh, kind of like I was not into talking about iBorg. Hmm. It's for different reasons, though. In iBorg, I felt like they said everything they needed to say, and they said it absolutely perfectly. Yeah. Um, here, I think they've crafted an absolutely wonderfully wonderful story, um, but I don't know how much of it is real. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like, like the sun mm-hmm. went supernova. We know that because data told us that. And other than that, we actually know very little about what actually happened. Um, was there a tree or was the tree a metaphor being used in the story told to Picard? 
were any of the mm. people like you asked earlier were any of the people that we saw actual people or were they really just advanced like non-player characters for this video game that Picard is playing to learn the history of Catan or Catan yeah. excuse me it's not Catan <laughs> right. that's a whole different thing one's a C one's a K learn the difference yep. is the story being told as current events or is it being told by historians like like was the last thing that happened before the planet died sending up this thing telling everything that happened right up to the last minute um, and was it an honest history or was it a palatable history? Hmm. So all that said, um, there was stuff that bothered me, but I don't know that it's worth being bothered about. Like, I'm, I'm bothered by the administrator's unwillingness to do anything but hope. Mm-hmm. Um, Bataille suggests a water catcher, or I'm sorry, uh, Cayman, I guess, suggests a water catcher. Mm-hmm. And the administrators, you know, accuses him of being an alarmist. And, you know, that's so wrong on so many levels. (laughs) This is where it sort of is an environmental thing. A lot of times you'll have people say, well, we don't know that climate change is man-made, so we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. I never really understand the whole, like, okay, well, we don't know that, but would it really hurt to do anything about it? (laughs) And apparently, yes. The answer to the administrator is yes. He strikes me as a very thoughts and prayers politician, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whereas Cayman, you know, is a believer. And, uh, oh, no, Bataille, actually, this time, it's Bataille who says, hope is a powerful weapon against anything. Um, well, unless your son's going supernova, it seems to me. Um, and then there's, like, the whole, oh, participatory government works. This You'll see this kind of participatory government works, says the administrator. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, jingoistic crap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Made for to real. keep Gaiman uh, docile in this episode. Um, I got one more thing, and then okay. seriously, I may be done for the segment. I'll okay. the rest. All of right. it, I'll just All be right. reacting to you. I think. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of the government's actions or lack thereof in the episode First Contact, uh, the one where we meet a civilization that's on the verge of warp drive, and mm-hmm. they abandon warp drive and thus progress because they're not ready for the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't think the people would understand that, and so like a couple of people. In this case, the administrator, and I guess his sub-administrators, but not so far down as Bataille and Cayman. Um, yeah, no, th- this would freak people out, so we're just not gonna. Because <laughs> here's the other question. They know that the planet's going to be destroyed. What do the average John and Jane think the probe is going up for hmm. at the end? When everybody yeah. gathers to watch the rocket take off, like yeah. what story did they spin for the reason that the rocket was taking off? Or, again, was the whole thing just like a short metaphor for Cayman? Are we actually seeing thousands of years of the civilization's decline in the lifespan of one person yeah. uh, crammed down into 30 minutes? One very, very last thing, I promise. <laughs> it doesn't have to be your last thing. We, you know, no, no this is it. Wait, done wait, talking wait. after this. I'm going to hang up. <laughs> so, so, so one very last thing. Did did um, why did they make it 30 minutes? We have a 48 minute show, and we always talk about the fact that man, they had to cram so much into 48 minutes, and then mm-hmm. we watch 48 minutes, and Picard gets up, and Riker's like, "You were only out for 25 minutes." <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's very small. That's sort right. of like an inside mission log joke, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, they could have told two life stories then, because they had like a whole <laughs> other half a show. Yeah. Mm. All right. Sorry to like sort of like all of that at once. But no, was- no. I, I think, I, I mean, look, when you started by saying you don't want to talk about it because you feel like it's an episode that we can't talk about. Well, it, here's the thing. I mean, I, I think with mission log, we get so wrapped up in what is the what is the point is there an an ethical 
moral dilemma that we have to wrestle with. Should Picard have gone ahead with the plan to wipe out the Borg? Right. Or is that, in fact, genocide and genocide is wrong? You know, right. these are the big topics. This is an episode that you feel. Yes. This is an episode that is a mind trip to say, wow, what is that road not taken? Um, so I think if we get too hung up on the politics of what's happening planet-wide on Catan, then, yeah, we, we're clearly missing something of the episode because that's not, like I said from the beginning, I think there's a hint of that there, and it doesn't necessarily have to be environmental, but that's an awfully good parallel to say, oh, okay, here, here's government in action, and that's one word, in action, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> given evidence. So I don't think it's fair yeah. to say that it's in action, John. They're hoping and praying. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that <laughs> works extraordinarily well. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, okay. So here's the thing then. Let's have the conversation not about this episode of Star Trek, but this episode of Mission Log. When we come across, when we come across like, like Mud's women, mm-hmm. we were, no, not Mud's women. Um, I mud. Okay. I mud. We were told that what we were supposed to do was just have fun. Yeah. And the problem is we, I mean, that's, that is literally not our job. <laughs> we literally have a job when we do this. Cause I mean, cause the reason I did not want to talk about this episode, it's beautiful, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is just such an amazing episode. And I kind of like, I found myself almost getting angry that I had to analyze it. Because hmm. this is an episode that I don't, and this is probably for next segment, but I'm doing it anyway. This is an episode that I don't want to analyze. I just, I just want to, like, because I can find things to be angry about in this episode. I can find things that bother me in this episode. Sure, sure. And I, and I don't want to. This episode, I mean, it, it, you say it won a Hugo Award. It absolutely should. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of, that's, that's sort of why I am where I am. But let's go ahead and talk about it anyway, because it'll be fun. <laughs> right. Um, I, I had a couple of thoughts that are related in this. That um, Remember when Riker said that his work is his life? Did he not say that to Minuet? He did. He did, yeah. 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 And, and we kind of presume the same thing about Picard. Um, but then you ask yourself, well, okay, well, at, at what point does a life, one's life, Picard's life, become what we make of it because of circumstance. So here's the thing. It may not be a really serious point of discussion, but it's interesting to me that point in the episode in which Picard is fully in as Cayman. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment where Bataille says, oh, okay, well, you, you talk back to the administrator. You sound like the old Cayman that I know. And, and it's when Cayman has something to fight for. So... It's not just having a wife or having friends or having a community. It's when there's a threat. So the the drought and Mm. the the larger issue of the government ignoring his warning and uh, the ability to do anything about it. Um, Forgive me. That's interesting. You say that's when he's fully in. I say he's fully in when he when he asks um, Eileen if if he can build the nursery. He actually seemed a little surprised at that point to me when Bataille said, oh, you sounded like the old Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Then Picard's like... um, he actually seemed sort of taken aback oh, by that. Yeah. But then when but then when he asks her permission, I mean that to me it feels like is when he's all in. Even suspecting that the planet's going to be destroyed, he's going to go ahead and live out this life to to its fullest. Yeah. Including giving her you know what she had wanted pretty much since he woke up from his fever dream. There is you know it's interesting that in there is that moment of hesitation, like you said, where Bataille says, "Hey, you seem like the old Cayman." Yeah. And there is maybe that realization, that moment. But 
in that moment, I feel like it's Picard forgetting himself. It's not the Picard who is looking through the telescope to try to see what's happening out there. It's it's the guy who's so wrapped up in what's happening. But yeah, you're right. There is that moment where he's sort of forgetting himself, but then remembers himself. Right, because I mean, that is something Picard would do. Picard stood up in the Klingon Council and fought for a better Klingon empire. And he's not Klingon. And he didn't forget that he was Picard at that point. I mean, that's, that is something that Picard's going to do every time, stand up to injustice, stand right, up for truth. Right. He's practically Superman in that case. Yeah. Where, where, he, <laughs> where, he, where he becomes something else is when he is, you're right, not looking for the Enterprise anymore, trying not to think about that whole life, but thinking instead, you know, this is my wife. This is the planet on which I live. Uh, why don't I give her the thing that she wants that she's been, you know, patiently waiting for for right, the last five years. Right. So here's another thing. Um, on our show before, we've, we've half jokingly, half seriously talked about how what we do now as human beings on social media is sort of that way we leave a little of ourselves behind in a bid for immortality. You know, 2,000 years mm-hmm. ago, uh, you would have built a statue. I don't know about you, but I, I, 2,000 years ago, I totally would have been in with a statue of myself being built <laughs> somewhere. Um, I was going to say, you wouldn't have built a statue. You would have commissioned the statue. I would have commissioned one. Honest. Yeah, 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 very true. Um, <laughs> 200 years ago, you would have uh, written a book or commissioned an oil painting, um, which may still be a good idea. Might still look into that someday. Um, so there's something in all of us, even if it's in a tiny way, that wants to be noticed and remembered. And there's a possibility that our descendants might have to do that on a global scale as well. Never know. (laughs) Um, The people from Catan have a particular story that they want to tell about themselves and the kind of people that they are. It's worth it every now and then to look that far ahead and ask ourselves what kind of message we're leaving to the future about who we are. Now, if we were to just take a slice of today and look at the digital trail that we leave behind, it's, um, it's arguing about politics, it's uh, posting pictures of food and cats. Um, but, you know, you do ask yourself, okay, in 100 years or 200 years or 500 or 1,000 years, does some historian look at that and are they able to put together a, a, some kind of a viable picture of who we are and what's actually important to us? You know, because that's that's what we're doing. We're we're doing what this probe does. We're we're leaving behind this representation of who we are, and we're leaving it behind in incredible detail compared to what could have been done a couple hundred years ago. Just amazing detail. We're also probably doing it more honestly, mm-hmm. and I don't. But but I think only honestly because it's accidental. How many selfies have you seen that were taken in a bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) You know, far too many because we're like, oh, I want to take this picture right now. We're not even thinking about what we're doing. There are very few historians, you know, who would begin, you know, as I sit here in the loo. Yeah. (laughs) I'm reminded of, you know, I mean, we don't do that. Uh, I found myself actually wondering uh, how representative. uh, Well, let me back up a little bit, too. Yeah. Uh, There's. So as we record this, and hopefully nobody will even be able to remember by the time they hear this that something so so tragic could have happened. But as we record this, we're about a week after uh, four people, let's call them idiots, mm-hmm. kidnapped a fifth person, mm-hmm. tortured him for several hours, and put the whole thing up on Facebook as they were doing it. Yeah. And when I say tortured, I don't mean made fun of. I mean cut. I mean yeah. tied up. 
I mean degraded, and did it for a viewing public. Um, we're leaving much more about ourselves for the future than I think we want to. Uh, the arguing about politics, though our arguments um, devolve into senseless gibberish almost immediately, mm. at least we're arguing about how things should go. Right, I mean, that's, right. So I, mean, I, I even give us a little bit of props for that. Um, although that's, that's kind of hard to do after a while. I did find myself wondering, though, in the story that's being told to Cayman or by Cayman, uh, how representative uh, the history actually is. Mm. I mean, Picard knows now what it's like to live in the suburbs. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gaton, right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. if they're a monoculture, into which, you know, like the ones we bump into on every planet, then he knows everything about this planet. Um, but is this whole planet the suburbs? I mean, is mm -hmm. there an uber-rich segment of the population about which we don't know? Are they the ones telling the story, or is it somebody else? Is there an uber-poor segment of the population right. uh, that nobody's talking about? Is there an agrarian uh, segment of the population? Um, all of that said, the scope of what he learns really is amazing. Yeah. For, for white dudes living in the suburbs. <laughs> um, you know, like, he learns, about, he learns about courting, not through his time with Aline, but by watching his daughter do it. Mm -hmm. He learns about the education system because he raises a couple of kids. Mm -hmm. He learns about the ineffectual system of government by trying to, yeah. by trying to work with the administrator, um, and and the food, and 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 the medical system because his wife has a kid, and yeah. his wife says people have surgery all the time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean he's getting to learn like you know everything about this maybe one segment of the population unless it is the monoculture. I mean there is something really neat about what's being presented and yet because you know again it's our gig i couldn't help wondering okay so do we now know everything about this planet <laughs> or do we know about the you know like enough about the planet like from the people who said no seriously we're going to be toast shouldn't we tell somebody something well you know it kind of goes back to this idea that we've talked about before how you have episodes that point to the the old axiom that uh, history is written by the victors right you know and, and there's something about that where you're saying okay history is edited it is polished it is there to tell a story yes. and 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 this the same way it may be as real as it can be but you're asking is it an edited version of that and and maybe with purpose you know obviously to tell a lot of information in a short period of time but to tell even on top of all of those details, tell an emotional truth about those people. It's essentially what we do with TV and what we do with movies. We know they're not real. We know that they are boiled down, edited versions of stories. But if it's a good one, they're telling an emotional truth that you get to walk away with. And that's kind of what this probe is doing to Picard, albeit in an extraordinarily profound way where he forgets who he is. But you know, that's that's the next step of uh, immersive entertainment. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's so much in this episode that, that ruminates on cyclical nature of life. Uh, you, you mentioned the tree. Is that tree a metaphor within the story? Mm -hmm. uh, or, or was it a real thing that they did? I think that's a great question. And I like that there is something so on the nose about that in the episode. Um, the baby being named Bataille to honor Cayman's friend who died. Cayman encouraging the younger Maribor to stop studying and go live her life with some love in it. The older Maribor is dedicated to giving her child a great life, even if it will be short. Picard is making the most of his life, even if it's the life he thinks he shouldn't have. 
and I think that's why it's so interesting to look at those moments where he's in, as we're saying, where he's actually bought into that as his life, even if there's this inkling still in there that Mm -hmm. he might be someone else. At a certain point, he's got to give in and just sort of live that life. Um, He says to Cayman, uh, Cayman says to his daughter, um, something about being burdened with the knowledge of things you can't change. And I think that's a, a realistic worry. I think this is a, another of the kind of essential truths in the episode that many people have that same concern from one generation to the next. Even the most optimistic of people will have that somewhere in the back of their heads. But Cayman's advice then is very wise. Make now always the most precious time because you're not guaranteed war. So mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting balance that he's uh, that he's trying to strike. And I think at the end of all of this, I'm curious. <laughs> Hold on, though. Uh, that's an interesting balance that he's trying to strike mm-hmm. because he knows there's no tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so Picard. So does Picard now go back? And I actually found myself wondering about this mm-hmm. when he stands up on the bridge and says, Dr. Crusher. Mm hmm. I, I, I there's a way that he said it. And I know after watching it again and again. That it was actually just trying to regain sort of um, regain recognition of sure. the things around him. Sure. But I did wonder when he stood up if he saw her and, you know, if, if any moment of that whole, what am I waiting for, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Now, now's the time. I have yeah. a friend who is very fond of, a very depressing friend sometimes. <laughs> but I have a friend who's very fond of saying, um, what is it? We're, 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 we're living in the, we're living in the time of the eternal now because mm-hmm. tomorrow is not guaranteed. And, and, you know, this is somebody I've known since the eighth grade and she's always talking about our age, which is very nice of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really mm-hmm. super mm-hmm. appreciative of that. But I mean, Picard has never been a, I'm just going to go and do, he had to be forced to go to Risa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it is only when there's no tomorrow that Picard says, Hey, you got to live like there's no tomorrow because he knows there is in fact no tomorrow. Not yeah. literally. So I mean, yeah. it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting argument. But I mean, he's not coming at it from a, you know, I'm 35 and throwing everything over. He's coming at it from, I'm 80, and yeah. not only am I going to die, but so is everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well, that that's where I kind of landed on this is wondering what were the long term psychological effects on Picard. You know, he he had this identity taken from him by the Borg, now he's given the opportunity to live out an entirely different life. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, he experiences the things that he always eschews. A wife, kids, a simpler life, all of this stuff. So does that experience linger? Does it soften him? Does he, as you're asking here, does he seize the day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, do, does this give him a new perspective? Um, you know, Morgan Gendel was insistent that Picard not be relieved to be back on the Enterprise in that last scene. You know, he, he described it, it was a speech or an interview or something where he said, one way to write this is that he wakes up and then he, he kisses the ground and he, and he hugs everybody on the bridge. But he felt that that was the wrong choice. He has lived 50 years in another life. So mm-hmm. presumably... Well, maybe not longer than Picard has been alive, but longer than Patrick Stewart had been alive at that point. Um, 
And he wanted to uh, avoid this cliche of, of Picard doing that. Um, and he assumed, okay, look, Picard is not the same, and he's not going to be the same. The flute was the, the thing to drive that home. Obviously, you're going to end on that rather than ending on a slap on the back and, well, it's good to be home. You can't do that. So, you know, so so then, yeah, I, I think what you're posing here is a great question. When he looks when he looks at Beverly, is he looking at Dr. Crusher, who is there to help him? Or is he looking at the person who now for five seasons there has been this on again, off again flirtation? Will he take that opportunity to seize a day because now is all that he's guaranteed? cannot believe we are already to segment four. Has it actually been 50 years already? All right, the inner light, it seems like the Mount Everest of the next generation when it comes to expectation and kind of maybe our own concern about uh, doing it some justice. But here we are at the end, the inner light, one of the most beloved and anticipated stories of next generation. Uh, so we're just going to wrap it all up in a couple of minutes. I think we can do that fairly and safely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Without upsetting anyone. No, not at all. Not at all. So, yeah. Ken, does the inner light hold up? I would say, John, it depends on how you ask. Um, this is TNG's City on the Edge of Forever, I think. Mm -hmm. um, we heard from a lot of people that this was their favorite episode, their absolutely favorite episode of The Next Generation, and I absolutely understand why that would be the case. Uh, we talked about it earlier. The acting is absolutely wonderful. I, I so believed the relationship between Picard and Aline, mm -hmm. or between uh, Cayman and Aline. Mm -hmm. Um I believed all the reveals in the story. And I, I feel like um, the Katamans, <laughs> I mean, this is the one thing, I actually think they were kind of cruel to Picard because they kept leaving clues for him that this wasn't real, but they kept making him go ahead and, 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 and accept it, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like the pendant around Aline's neck. They, like, like they show him, oh, this is that probe. Yeah. But, but, but forget that. <laughs> <laughs> go past that they make him think or try to make him think anyway that his life on the Enterprise was a lie and that works and then you know they do that they give him this entirely different life um, it, just to toss him back you know into his old life um, which it, it kind of like, so when I start to actually try, try to pick it apart I'm angry that, that it's that it's our, our duty our job this time mm -hmm. to pick it apart this episode is beautiful and it does not say nearly as much about who we are or who we should be as something like I Borg or, or half a life or the Corbin might maneuver. Um, but it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing episode. Now, is it good Star Trek? We've had this discussion about city on the edge of forever before mm -hmm. it doesn't do all of the things that a lot of times we want star trek to do but this week i don't care <laughs> it's 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 just a wonderfully beautiful episode i mean as you said before as you mentioned before there's a reason it won the hugo award it's perfect science fiction yeah it, i mean it really may honestly literally be perfect science fiction is it perfect star trek yeah 
<laughs> Talk about something else. Talk about something else because it's because it's beautiful. It is a beautiful thing that they've done here. And so I kind of want to remove it from the from the Star Trek discussion because it's it's I mean it's just an amazing episode. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that uh you mentioned City on the Edge of Forever. I read on IMDb that the three top episodes of Star Trek in its entirety named mm-hmm. at the 50th anniversary convention in Vegas. They were City on the Edge of Forever. <laughs> Wait, who Deep, did this? Yeah, Deep Wait a Space. minute. We yeah. were there. Who did this? I, I cannot remember. Maybe it was it uh was it Larry or was it Jordan? I I don't gosh. know. Somebody somebody did it. <laughs> Oh, Somebody good. did it. So, All right. City on the Edge of Forever, Deep Space Nine's In the Pale Moonlight, and this, The Inner Light. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. It's all episodes with no bad guys, no battles, mm-hmm. no, you know, no phaser. Well, there's one guy who phases himself in City on the Edge of Forever, but that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> typically non-Star Trek, Star Trek. Well, in fairness... Hitler was also mentioned in City on the Edge of Forever. So I don't know. You can say that there are no bad guys. Yeah. Okay. He was mentioned. He was mentioned. Not to bring the whole thing to Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but but those are non-typical Star Trek episodes, and those are the ones that resonate the most with the audience. It's just a, yeah. a, an interesting observation. Um, I think you and I, we looked at this and we were both a little bit intimidated. I, I'll admit that I was anyway. It's just so universally loved and for many great reasons. It's another one of those episodes where you could take one idea, one plot thread, and spin that out into a show on its own. So if we didn't do enough on this episode of the one aspect that means the most to you, I, I'm sorry. We could have done five more shows on it, maybe. Um, but this is what... Star Trek, or at least what science fiction storytelling does maybe what it's best. It's using a sci-fi premise or using a sci-fi setting to tell a deeply personal story, the kind that asks us to contemplate ourselves and our own lives. And you don't need to do that with a bunch of spaceship battles and phasers, though that's cool, too. There are many great moments where that happens, too. Um, This is purely a look at the road not taken for Picard. Mm-hmm. And we get to live that question out ourselves by by watching it happen. There's also a delightfully Twilight Zone twist to the whole thing. It's far more gratifying than just finding a tape full of stories from the people on this planet and then having Picard sit down and read about it on a computer screen during his time off. Because we know that's what he does during his time off. He just falls asleep with a book. Um, there, there is something really amazing about living that history and and really immersing yourself, like I said, in the emotional truth of these other people. So, yeah, for all these great storytelling elements, it absolutely holds up. I think you pose a legitimate question. Is it the most Star Trek of Star Trek? Maybe not, but maybe that doesn't matter. Um, How about morals, meanings, and messages? Well, I kind of want to remove myself from that. Honestly, okay. I kind of want to remove myself from this discussion. I mean, as far as that goes, because I'm sort of, I am doing what everybody told me I should do with all the Harry Mudd episodes. I'm just having fun. Um, I mean, yeah, there's the whole uh, seize the day uh, mm-hmm. sort of message, except it's not one that Picard actually lives by. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to, I mean, again, not to be cynical about it, but he says seize the day when he knows his planet is going to be destroyed and when he's in his 80s. So, I mean... 
it's kind of hard to say, well, that's that's definitely a message of this episode. Because mm-hmm. it is a message of the episode, but, I mean, Picard's going to be captain of the Enterprise next week. Yeah. He's going to be captain of the Enterprise for two more seasons. He's not suddenly going to move to Risa, nor is he going to go become the archaeologist that, you know, he secretly seems to want to be, nor is he going to, you know, hail Q and track down Vosh. Right, I mean, right. and so, I mean, he's not... I mean, yes, that is a message that's presented here, but I don't know... I mean, again, we go back to I, Borg. We go back to Half a Life. I mean, these were message episodes. Uh, this, is this I don't think, is a message episode. So while there may be things that we can apply, I just kind of want to take myself out of the messages, morals, meanings part of this one because this is, this is not that. This is a beautiful story. Yeah. Um, through which Picard moves and through which we feel... But I don't know. I mean, it, that that was me at the end of it. What about you? Well, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is right. It, this is not a you see Timmy episode. Right. It's not save the whales. It's not war is bad. Um, but there are all these little moments where there's a sort of a, a nice little bit of wisdom for you to mull over and, and see how it applies to your life. So as it allows the character of Picard to be reflective, it allows us to be reflective. Now, like you said, it won't necessarily hold up. <laughs> we, we don't get to see Picard. We don't get to see Picard change next week and say, wow, what am I doing with my life as a Starfleet captain when I could be raising kids and playing the flute? You know, So, so there, there might be something that is a bit of a loss there, but um, you know, I, I thought the messages that were there, at least the, the little nuggets of wisdom were pretty interesting. Um, last week in the next phase, I mentioned that one of the messages was if you just accept what you're told, you'll never be able to change your reality. In this episode, there's a little bit of that with the people of Catan doing what they can to make the most of a dire situation and, and clinging to hope. But there's something the opposite about Picard. He, he fully gives in at a certain point to the illusion. Right. Um, so is there a counter message to that about acceptance? <laughs> and not even just an acceptance, but an embrace. Uh, he is embracing this life that he has because that's the reality of his situation at uh, that point. Dude, mm. that's a horrible yeah. message, isn't it? Uh, what, is it? Isn't it? Is it, though? Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, l- look at what Picard gets out of it as Cayman. He has a, a tremendous emotional life as a husband and as a father and as a member of his community. All right. It's an interesting question, <laughs> you know. Um, there's something about living by doing. Picard doesn't have a choice necessarily, but his experience isn't something that can come from a book. He, he embraces the opportunities at a certain point that this new life affords him. Um, he says to his daughter, he says to Maribor, Pursue the truth no matter how painful it is. Uh, that's a good, scientifically sound bit of advice. Um, he also imparts a bit of wisdom that she needs to enjoy her life, too. Mm-hmm. Not so bad. Um, I think one of the ones that people will definitely latch on to at this episode, make now always the most precious time. Now will never come again. Um, which is wonderful and exhilarating and also daunting in some way. Um, the idea that we follow our dreams because we don't know how much time we have, that's great. It's also a bit terrifying, mm-hmm. but it's also great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and I mentioned before in the last segment, decide what kind of a legacy you're going to leave for yourself. We, we do that in 
weird and different ways now than we used to. We will continue doing that whether we know it or not. Um, so maybe there is at least a minute to kind of think about how we structure that for other people to find, other people to discover. And um, I, I guess, it, you know, the interesting thing about this probe and about leaving a message to the future, I, I believe it was a wise old country doctor, Ken, who once said he, he's not really gone as long as we remember him. And that's all the people of Catan were asking is just to be remembered so that maybe they're not really gone after all. So, um, yeah, I, man, the, this was an interesting episode. I, I, think, I, I think, like you're saying, it's not one of those that we can pick apart the way we normally pick apart Star Trek. There, there aren't heroics. There aren't speeches. There aren't battles. There aren't big bads. Yeah. But, man, does it emotionally resonate. Yeah. And, and for that reason, you know, this kind of goes back to the whole point of Mission Log is to say that if it's a great story, it'll have emotional resonance, whatever it is, whether it's a science fiction story on TV or a great book or a great movie. The emotional truth to it is what's important. And, and this delivers in spades. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about all the good stuff and other stuff that Roddenberry is doing at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. Next week, Times Arrow. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I'm going to write um, the worst alternative ending ever for this show. <laughs> no. So, at the very end of it, yeah. um, Jordy says, maybe we should all get flutes. Because <laughs> if they can teach Captain Picard to seize the day, they can do anything. Anything. That's, that's good. And then that's, big laugh. Yep, big laugh. And Freeze frame. Yeah. Next week, Jordy's peeling potatoes with you and me. Right. Go carefully, everybody. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.